Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air with you guys. Hard to believe uh, tomorrow is uh, Friday, and I also find it hard to believe that this uh, week that we're in, in the month of January, is the last full week. You know, it may seem hard to believe that January is coming uh, to an end. Uh, I didn't think that, um, you know, the month, given the first month to uh, 2024, would have uh, moved as quick as it has, but it's just what it is. But um, I can say overall that the um, that uh, January of 2024 has been uh, not only good to me, but it's uh, been uh, good to my wife as well. So uh, we can't complain, uh, to say the least. I will tell you this much, that uh, we are getting um, very, very close to the end of this uh, book topic uh, podcast series. I will say this. Um, I've learned more about sacrifices. I think it's fair to say that all sacrifices were made big and small throughout this um, greater uh, cause for independence from England during the time of the American Revolutionary War and not just during the time of the war uh, in terms of when shots were uh, first fired at Lexington and Concord in 1775 and and of course when uh, Cornwallis surrendered to Washington at Yorktown but it's very fair to say that sacrifice sacrifices big and small were made well before uh, shots were first uh, fired at Lexington and Concord uh, especially in the lead up um, you know say with um, with, unfortunately, with what led up to uh, the Boston Massacre and uh, the Boston um, Tea Party. I could go on and on, but uh, I think it is fair to say that uh, sacrifices, big and small, uh, were made in all phases um, prior to and when uh, the shots were first fired, or as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, uh, shots first fired round the world, or shots heard round the world, I should say. But um, after uh, tonight's uh, podcast segment episode, I'll go ahead and tell you all this now when I am on the air again next, uh, we will be um, into the uh, epilogue of uh, M. William Phelps's uh, Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's First Spy. More often than not, I will say that we do um, tend to hear about those whom defected or those whom... Uh, more often than not, those whom try to defect, whom, um, you know, paid a price. Uh, of course, when I think of uh, someone whom defected, um, the person that comes to my mind is usually Benedict Arnold. But we do have to be reminded that there were uh, spies whom, um, yes, were caught and uh, did pay the ultimate price. But at the same time, they knew that it was a sacrifice they were willing to make, even if it meant getting caught. So I think it's fair to say that uh, for Nathan Hale, that he probably knew that there was some chance, I don't know maybe what the percentage chance was, but maybe it's fair to say that for Nathan Hale, he probably knew that there was a 50-50 chance he probably wasn't going to make it back alive. But if there was a 50% chance that he could have made it back alive, then he certainly would have done everything Um, to have made it happen, but unfortunately luck was not on his side. And of course that is unfortunate. 
But it is also fair to say that even if Nathan Hale had not taken on this mission and someone else had, who's not to say that Tom Jones or John Smith would have um, returned alive? Not trying to sound skeptical or doubtful, but it's fair to say that throughout the um, American Revolutionary War that it was more than just uh, one specific time where as Thomas Paine famously said it, these are the times that try men's souls. It was very fair to say that uh, the New York and uh, New Jersey campaigns from uh, August of 1776 leading up to um, December of 1776 were uh, trying times, to say the least. More so, uh, I think it's fair to say there were uh, more so um, downward moments. There were a few uphill moments where things actually were looking good for Washington. Of course, I, you know, if one were to ask me what would have probably been the grandest uphill moment was when uh, Washington, um, when he got the um, help he needed from, um, from the double spy named John Honeyman to uh, go about attacking the um, British uh, post, or I wouldn't say so much the British post, the Hessian post to Trenton, which they did, and um, it was um, probably the best uh, move Washington had made to basically save the cause and to keep the flames for independence alive, but I know I could keep going on and on about um, all the ups and downs, but what I do know is that we've got to get um, this show on the road here shortly, and what I will say is that in this um, next uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn about how the search ends for Nathan Hale. In other words, we've learned that Enoch Hale, Nathan's brother, has um, pursued a, um, a noble quest in search of the truth. But Enoch is going to, um, he's going to learn some very hard truths. He's probably already learned, I think it's fair to say that we learned that he's um, learned some hard truths but the bottom line is that even if we get to the bottom of the truth with something, is it going to um, help us? In other words, is it going to help us get over the sadness? Is it going to make us stronger knowing that, okay, this is what happened to my sibling, as tragic as it was. Am I better off now knowing that I've learned about this? Well, I think it's time to get the show on the road and let's get this um, let's get to the bottom of this. So here we go with our first leadoff question. After formally introducing himself to Colonel Charles Webb, what news did Enoch receive about Nathan? It um, it wasn't good news, folks. It was um, sad or I would call it uh, distressing news. Enoch spoke to uh, multiple soldiers from Nathan's regiment whom provided different accounts per one story, but yet the answer or final conclusion is what everyone within uh, Nathan's regiment uh, came to uh, the realization. It was one that they knew deep down that they would not have wanted to have had to have told anybody whom was dear to Nathan but especially to a, a family member. That answer or final conclusion that um, a handful of soldiers from within Nathan's regiment 
they um, told Enoch that Nathan had died. Can't imagine the look on Enoch's face, or let alone his expression, knowing that um, you've just heard not only from one person from the regiment, but say from a dozen or more soldiers, and that they all have unanimously agreed by now that Nathan has died. For everyone whom Enoch spoke to within Nathan's regiment, all, all of them agreed uh, unanimously that Nathan was hung by the uh, British, a.k.a. the Redcoats. Despite having uh, endured uh, large numbers of casualties or uh, losses at Harlem Heights to getting forced out from New York City, what did Enoch learn? We have to keep in mind, folks, that you know Enoch um, did arrive uh, into New York at the time when um, when the, the uh, Continental forces uh, were constantly on the run, and it was also a means of survival if they had you know constantly just you know remained in one place. I, I think the army would have been annihilated to where the cause for independence would have just uh, ended just like that. And uh, the British, I will admit, did have plenty of opportunities to um, end this uh, rebellion once and for all in New York. Um, New York really was, given that it was such a strong loyalist um, household, not household, but a stronghold, I should say, that, um, yes, uh, British leaders, most notably General William Howe, knew that there were plenty of opportunities to just end quash this rebellion once and for all, but yet um, somehow Washington's forces with, um, with the, uh, one situation, thanks to the weather, given that it was foggy and all that, they were able to um, uh, evacuate uh, the um, encampment where they uh, were and to go over to the opposite side of the river where uh, some soldiers left behind uh, to uh, basically distract the enemy should their forces arrive. But it did pay off because um, Washington's forces did live for another day to fight. Uh, but it, this is just an example of where the British uh, missed a golden opportunity to just uh, pretty much end this um, rebellion altogether. But as for um, Enoch, Hale, he learned more about Nathan's last days alive prior, his, prior to his departure to Long Island, including overall troop morale status, which, believe it or not, was pretty strong. I was always under the assumption that, um, given that there had been you know, one defeat after another at New York, that um, troop morale was just stagnant, meaning that it was at an all-time low and that nothing had changed. And it might be fair to say that troop morale probably was far more um, downward than it was upward, but we should be reminded of the fact that, that there were moments where troop morale in New York was actually high. And it is good to know, though, that even though Enoch got news, despite the fact that Enoch received news that wasn't um, pleasant, or I should say that was uh, distressing, I think it is fair to say that even in the, that even within the final days of his brother's life, 
right up to the time that he departed uh, to go on to Long Island, that overall troop morale status, not only within his regiment, but perhaps with other regiments, was strong. Enoch saw firsthand that many Continental troops, including those within Nathan's regiment, weren't um, patriots for personal gain. In other words, these were men who weren't in it just for themselves. But instead, Enoch saw firsthand that, um, that many Continental troops saw themselves as patriots unified behind taking up arms and making all necessary sacrifices for their nation. So in other words, Enoch saw um, soldiers banding together, regardless of the regiment they were in, to um, take up a cause that exemplified us, we, ourselves. After all, that's what General George Washington wants, even when the going gets tough. This can't be an army about I, me, myself. If we're going to defeat the mightiest empire in the world from a militaristic standpoint, it's got to be us, we, ourselves. You can't have any pockets of isolationism. Uh, you can't have any um, pockets of um, soldiers coming and going as they wish to do on their terms you know for Washington you know he needs soldiers whom are committed he needs soldiers whom whom can get back up and do something about it when the going gets tough after you've lost a, a couple of battles you've got to get back up and fight because the because if there's one thing the enemy wants you to do they just want you to throw in the towel and by throwing in the towel, not only are you giving up the cause for independence, but you are returning back to uh, subject status, living under the crown's authority. And living under the crown's authority represents tyranny, represents a whole other uh, round of uh, parliamentary legislation where no consent was provided to the subjects living 3,000 miles across the ocean. So, yes, for Enoch Hale... He is seeing um, many Continental troops, including those within Nathan's regiment, unified behind taking up arms and making all necessary sacrifices for their nation. And not just making um, the necessary sacrifices, but they are placing a greater duty on, onto God. In other words, God himself wants you to make the ultimate sacrifice so that not only you can live in a better world, but also live in a, in a uh, country where freedoms triumph over tyranny, but that freedoms are not only uh, cherished in the present, but they will also be handed down to future generations who will understand what sacrifices those whom came before them made and I think that's something we need more than ever now in this day and age. Uh, but that's as far as I'll go. But I'm sure many of you all would agree there. So for Nathan, the mission that Nathan Hale embarked upon by going into Long Island behind enemy lines was one of great sacrificial cause. He was willing to risk his own life despite the objections that he uh, came upon from within Knowlton's Rangers inner circle. And remember, folks, there were um, comrades of his 
whom, yes, they, you know, did admire him for what he stood for, but many of them said to him, you know, you, you shouldn't be taking this on. What if you don't come home alive? What about our well-being? Just some of the many questions that uh, Nathan Hale probably was asked, but yet he went on despite the fact that, you know, it's unfortunate that he died, but, you know, the bottom line is he went on. Nathan Hale was also heavily influenced by family members whom encouraged him to make the proper sacrifices behind greater cause in taking up arms against the mother country. Well, there's nothing wrong with being influenced by many uh, people around you, whether it's your family or uh, friends. If they all, you know, guide you in the right direction, then you'll know that not only do they have your backs, but they also know that you have what it takes to make the necessary sacrifices, not only to be successful for yourself, but also to um, make a difference for your country. Perhaps it's fair to say that Nathan Hale was doing something that a future president whom took office from, 1960, from January 20th of 1961 up until the day he was sadly assassinated on November 22nd of 1963. He was in office for a thousand days, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and at his inauguration speech on January 20th, 1961, he said something like this, The torch has been passed down to a new generation of Americans. I ask my fellow Americans... Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So perhaps for Nathan Hale, he represented a new um, generation, a new generation of uh, leaders whom were willing to uh, step up to the plate and, and think to themselves, what can I do for my country? Well, he fought. He was a captain of his own of, of a regiment uh, within the uh, Connecticut militia, and he went behind enemy lines, and he made the ultimate sacrifice. But he stepped up and heeded that call of asking what I can do for my country, my newly created um, nation, even though it was not recognized by the mother country. Uh, did a British officer walk across enemy lines on September 23rd waving a white flag, or what's known as a truce flag? Yes. That was uh, British Captain John Montressor, who was an engineer in the British Army. He was the officer whom provided, um, he would be the officer whom provided the news, or the uh, breaking news, if we want to call it that, that an American spy named Nathan Hale had been executed the day before on September 22nd. I think if we recall from a previous episode where uh, Nathan Hale um, was allowed to stay inside Captain John Montressor's tent, Montressor himself was very um, fascinated by Nathan's uh, drawings, sketches, and um, John Montressor knew that um, Nathan, based upon his observations of Nathan, that he was a man of deep faith, that he did not show any signs of um, panicking, trembling. Oh, I'm sure deep down inside Nathan probably did, but he couldn't show it. 
In other words, uh, for you know, I can't imagine being in Captain John Montresor's shoes, knowing that I'm now arriving into enemy lines, waving a white flag or what's called a truce flag, and I have to be the one to provide um, the news that uh, the enemy doesn't want to hear, but yet they've got to find out because I know many of them are wondering what happened, what really happened to Nathan Hale. So yes, um, and I'll mention some more here in just a moment with what um, Captain Montressor uh, does. But as for Colonel Charles Webb, he you know he's the one that uh, filled in for um, Nathan Hale while Nathan went on to this perform this uh, secret mission. Colonel uh, Charles Webb had told Enoch that Nathan had embarked on a top secret mission via direct orders from General Washington. Colonel Webb told Enoch that when Nathan departed camp, he was part of Knowlton's Rangers. So in other words, yes, Nathan was part of the uh, 7th Connecticut um, Regiment or 3rd Company, but yet he was no longer with that unit when it came to um, performing the top secret mission. As for Captain uh, John Montresor, he met with Joseph Reed, Washington's adjutant general, being that of chief administrative officer, along with General Israel Putnam, and a captain by the name of Alexander Hamilton. Yes, folks, uh, for those of you who don't know, Alexander Hamilton, whom would uh, go on, whom would become uh, a signer to the United States Constitution, and um, the United States' first uh, treasury secretary, and one day would become a thorn in Thomas Jefferson's side. But then again, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton would become thorns to one another's sides. But yes, Alexander Hamilton was a captain, folks, in the American Revolutionary War. These three Continental Army officers met directly with um, British Captain John Montressor, Montressor told all three of these officers that General William Howe had recently overseen the hanging of an American spy. You know, it's one thing to arrive on a flag of truce, or truce flag, or a white flag, but that doesn't always mean that whatever news you bring, it doesn't mean that it's good news. Just because it's a, 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 a flag that represents non-fighting, terms, just know that the news you're going to get is either for the better or for the worse. But I still can't imagine being in Captain John Montresor's shoes. You know, I know that he had, he obviously would have had some form of empathy for Nathan, but yet even Montresor himself could not have um, stopped the execution, neither could have General William Howell. But I can only imagine what Montressor must have been feeling inside while witnessing the execution take place. Probably a lot of mixed emotions. Yes, spying was frowned upon. Yes, in the eyes of Robert Rogers, a punishment needed to be doled out. Yes, the public probably needed to be taught a lesson about what happens when people from the other side try to cross over into our territory only to get caught. But then you have to wonder, by hanging someone from the enemy side, what's going to happen down the road when someone from within your party 
tries to cross over into enemy lines and infiltrate not only the community in terms of trying to uh, persuade people to fall for bait, or in other words, try to um, lure you know everyday people into traps where they spill out information that they know they should not be randomly just telling to whomever they whomever they want to. So, in other words, yes, Captain John Montressor has you know you know witnessed the execution of Nathan Hale. But you have to wonder if Montressor himself or anybody else within the inner circle, you just have to wonder if any of them ever thought to themselves, would one of our officers somewhere down the road in the future be caught crossing enemy lines only to meet a, um, a fateful, or I should say, um, unwanted death, like the same way that this fella and Nathan Hale has now met? You just have to wonder. Colonel Webb, uh, as a matter of fact, he, Colonel Webb himself met Captain Montressor, whom admitted that he had gone about befriending Nathan while he awaited his fate. As sad as it is, even for Colonel Charles Webb, whom knew Nathan well, maybe it's fair to say that even Colonel Charles Webb, including uh, Joseph Reed, at, um, General Israel Putnam, and Captain Alexander Hamilton, maybe it's fair to say that they all they all can, I don't know if I would say be 100% relieved, but maybe they can be somewhat, they can feel somewhat assured by 50% knowing that, okay, despite the fact that our, um, that one of our own was hung by the enemy, at least there were people from within whom did befriend Nathan and did make an effort to know him and comfort him as he awaited his fate. So in other words, it, maybe we could say that at least there were some people whom did show empathy. They obviously had to be careful as to how much they could do it out in the open around others. But if I was in uh, Colonel John, in uh, Captain John Montressor's shoes, I would have done the same thing. I would have uh, shown some empathy towards Nathan Hale. I would have had to have done, well, I don't think I could have spent three hours engaging in reflect in reflection or uh, daily devotionals at that time. But the bottom line is that it's probably uh, come across many of these, many of these uh, people's minds like that of Montressors whom have to wonder you know, I hope that I don't have to witness something like this again, but what if something happens to one of my own uh, fellow uh, comrades within the inner circle? If they get caught by the enemy, being the Continentals, how are they going to be treated? Are they going to get treated the same way that we that we went about uh, treating Nathan and hanging him and doing so without a trial? So there's a lot of um, internal uh, feelings. There's a lot of uh, mixed emotions about how you go forward, not only in the midst of watching someone get hung who uh, was from the opposite side, but how you go about sharing that news with the opposition's inner circle. Now, um, after having spoken to Colonel Webb, along with learning about his brother's uh, passing, what did Enoch realize next? 
Well, for starters, he realized that his travels weren't totally finished. But the most fundamental objective centered around finding Nathan's body and returning it home to where he would receive a proper burial. Little does Enoch know, folks, that Nathan's body has already been buried, but it's been but it's buried in an unmarked site. And as I mentioned from a previous podcast, if you were on present day Third Avenue in New York City and you were anywhere between 46th and 66th Streets, that's where Nathan um, is buried. I mean, he is buried um, where he's buried. It's somewhere between present day 46th and 66th Streets. It's so easy to assume that, you know, walking on a present day sidewalk, regardless of whether it's in a town or a big city, that, oh, there was nothing here before I ever came about. One thing that my wife and I had to be reminded of is that when we went to Philadelphia um, nearly three summers ago, back in 2021, we took a, a, a tour one day and we, um, we were told that where we were walking, more than likely there were um, bodies well below the surface that were stacked on top of one another as a result of the uh, 1793 uh, yellow fever epidemic that uh, wiped out 10% of uh, Philadelphia's population. So that was a uh, stark reminder of the fact that, you know, just because you're walking on a sidewalk, that doesn't mean that that there are stories below the surface of where mass uh, people died as a result of a um, disease outbreak um, within the nation's capital, which at the time, folks, from 1790 to 1800, Philadelphia was the nation's capital, and I can't imagine the nation's capital in the midst of a yellow fever epidemic. It almost wiped out the government. So... um, the War for Independence, though, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to tell you here, the War for Independence relied greatly upon unity, given civilians got asked to support the greater cause in any way possible from giving up their own muskets and rifles to supplying food and shelter for soldiers from one or more nights, or I should say evenings, along uh, trails leading to combat or battle. So it's not just the soldiers, folks. It's, you know, everyday people whom say um, the, the, uh, the husband did not go to uh, fight in the war, but yet he was willing to um, provide whatever he had at his disposal, whether it was a few extra muskets or rifles to give to soldiers who were in need of, um, of a firearm, because we do need to be reminded that not all the soldiers right away probably did have access to a firearm. If they did, it was probably the only one that they carried in their house, or if they They'd be lucky if they had two that once they left to go fight, the wife would need uh, protection if in the event the enemy tried to break into the house. Did Enoch record any notes in his journal regarding Nathan's uh, personal items? I know this seems a bit odd, but I will make reference of this um, here uh, soon before the uh, podcast segment episode's over. Uh, But the answer is yes to this question. Enoch made reference that most of his brother's personal belongings were saved, especially the trunk, 
which Enoch was led to believe uh, that was more than likely taken by Asher Wright, Nathan's uh, servant. Asher Wright was the one person whom Enoch firmly believed knew exactly where Nathan's remains lied via burial ground. The evening of October 29th saw Enoch spend the night at Titus Mead's lodge, but prior to returning for the night, Enoch most likely asked the following while praying to himself. Let's listen to this very carefully. One question that Enoch would have been asking as he was praying to himself would have been the following, in quotations, Why had Nathan crossed enemy lines to begin with? In other words, what compelling reasons were there for Nathan to take on such a daring mission, going by himself, knowing that no matter how well disguised he could have been, what were the chances that he still would have been caught? And even if Nathan had made it back alive, who's not to say that maybe he would have been asked to take on another mission? So in other words, for, for Enoch, why was it so essential for my brother to cross enemy lines to begin with? Remember, folks, Nathan had written to Enoch right before this mission, but if there was one thing Nathan could not do in other letters down the road, he couldn't tell Enoch about the top-secret mission, and the same would have been for others. He couldn't tell Enoch that he was part of Knowlton's Rangers, because little did Enoch know that Knowlton's Rangers was, in fact, an elite uh, elite group uh, whose uh, purposes were... Um, like that of um, modern-day CIA uh, covert operations, or that of the modern-day uh, Green Berets or uh, SEAL Team 6. Another question that Enoch would have asked is this one. Why had he been accused of being a spy? Well, as we know, when Nathan met with uh, Robert Rogers, well, of course, Nathan did not know who Robert Rogers looked like, but yet Robert Rogers got um, intelligence um, confirmation from someone below him, most likely working in that, um, it's what's called the Queen's Rangers. Obviously, Robert Rogers was tipped off by someone from within the Queen's Rangers as to this um, mysterious fellow whom uh, others had said uh, within Huntington that he was uh, asking questions about, you know, where their loyalty stood, what was the overall population of the, um, of the British uh, troop force in terms of its strength, or strength, I should say. So those questions obviously would have propelled Robert Rogers to um, confront um, this uh, mysterious person as he recognized him. And for Robert Rogers to manipulate Nathan by saying, hey, I'm a patriot, I sh I, I'm very concerned about uh, the well-being of, um, of New York. And, you know, what, what could you share with me? Well, as passionate of a patriot as Nathan was, he told the whole nine yards. The sad part is, is that he told it to the wrong person. So, in other words, it was, of course, for Enoch, 
you know, these are just a few handful of questions that, um, that are um, unresolved. But for Enoch, you know, yes, it is uh, disheartening to know why my brother had been accused of being a spy when, oh, he would never have harmed anyone. Well, no, Nathan would not have harmed anyone, but the bottom line is he went over into enemy lines and he got caught, and obviously for the British, spying is frowned upon. Their motto is the following, you spy, you must die, or rather I should say, if you spy, you die. So for the British, there is no toleration of um, spying, and there's no, um, there's no such thing as a mulligan for the uh, enemy to do over. But, of course, if we are in Enoch's shoes, we simply do, ha- I mean, we certainly do have the right to ask these questions, even if we're struggling to get the uh, full truth that we desire to obtain. Did Enoch ever meet up with Asherite? This is the individual whom Enoch was convinced knew exactly, would have known exactly where Nathan's remains lied. But the answer, folks, is no. Enoch never was able to get physical confirmation as to where Nathan's remains lied. You know, it's so easy to want to believe that um, back then everybody got a burial in the war. No, not everyone did. A lot of people's bodies were buried on top of one another in, in some instances. It, it doesn't make it right or sound right, but it did happen, folks. I mean, we didn't, not everyone had time to bring everyone together and, you know, and have people, you know, deliver eulogies left and right. Uh, we just didn't have time for that in, during this uh, greater conflict. But I also have to be reminded of the fact that, um, that believe it or not, there are, I, I still hear stories from time to time where, um, loved ones are still in search of, of a family member's remains, knowing that still to this day they are listed as uh, POWs, prisoners of war from the Vietnam War or from the Korean War, and in some instances from World War II. So, you know, we just, we just have to be reminded of the fact that there are still plenty of stories out there where where a loved one's remains are still missing and have not been able to be uh, brought home to the um, to those um, loved ones from within the family who are still alive. So the sad part is, is that, um, you know, yes, it's very unfortunate that Enoch never got to meet up with Asher Wright because Enoch knew that this was probably perhaps the best source in terms of getting that actual direct physical confirmation as to where, in fact, just maybe the remains lied. November 2nd saw Enoch journey back to Granville, Massachusetts, where he went about spending four days at, um, at Lyman's house. I think you all remember from an earlier episode about how Lyman um, may have gone to Yale with Enoch and Nathan. But he's a friend. Enoch's journey into how Nathan died ended when he arrived at uh, Lyman's place. November 6th, after spending four days at Lyman's place, Enoch returned to the family farm in Coventry. I can't imagine, you know, yes, you are returning to Coventry, 
you do have news to bring to the family, but it's not going to be the news that you, um, it's news that's, it's dreading news. But I almost have to wonder by this point, if in fact the Hale family, the extended um, Hale family members have come to some realization that, hey, given that we have not heard from him in so long, something just tells us that he may have already passed away. So Enoch returned to the family farm in Coventry on November 6th of 1776. And yes, he had to... um, give them the news that he had learned from uh, Colonel Charles Webb and from others within the regiment that Nathan had died. Nathan's death, as tragic as it was, it had rather very little effect on what Washington's forces were were currently going up against between November and December, given by this time or at the present moment the Continental Army was faced with a grave internal crisis behind keeping the flames for independence alive. There was no mention of Nathan's death. And I'm sure I've probably mentioned this before from other podcast segment uh, topics pertaining to the Revolutionary War, but by late 1776, folks, um, morale is at an all-time low. Desertions are rampant. Uh, Soldiers have, you know, returned back to their um, homes to tend to family farms Many of them have just given up. They don't see uh, this cause as being anything worthy. But there are those whom have stayed. And and by this time, this is when Thomas Paine writes writes one of his famous pamphlets that uh, starts out by saying, these are the times that try uh, men's souls, um, common sense. And... um, an act of God uh, does happen on Christmas night of 1776 when Washington's uh, forces not only cross the Delaware River, they ultimately begin a 10-mile journey, and um, the mission is victory or death, basically. If Washington had not taken on this uh, mission, the chances of a Continental Army existing into the very, very beginning of 1777 would have been incredibly slim. So Washington knows that that he's got to lay it all on the line, and he does, and he um, achieves one of the most improbable victories by defeating uh, nearly a a 1,000-Hessian force unit led by uh, Colonel Johann Rahl, one of the most uh, feared uh, Hessian officers. Washington's army pretty much routes the Hessians, and it was not just a victory that uh, restored morale to the uh, con- for the Continentals, but it was really the victory that um, that turned the world upside down. Here's another example, folks, of where the British had every opportunity to seal the deal. The Hessians had been told, even by this double spy named John Honeyman, that look, Washington and his men are weak; they're not going to do anything. But I do know that you have the means to go finish them off if you really want to. You've got your opportunities. Historians know that Colonel Johann Rahl uh, scoffed at uh, Honeyman. He he even scoffed at Honeyman by saying, you've got to be kidding me. They don't have anything fortified. They don't know how to fight. As soon as they see us with our bayonets fixed, they run. They run like scaredy cats. Well, this time around, folks, 
we got the upper hand and um, and we turned the world upside down come Christmas night of 1776. Now, as for uh, June 4th of 1777, Nathan Hale's personal items arrived at the family farm in Coventry. The travel trunk that Enoch believed may have been taken by Asher Wright uh, arrived, and it contained um, important information of Nathan's. Well, not just information, but, you know, belongings, I should say. It contained his uniform, an army um, diary, a receipt book, his captain's commission, and multiple letters. All of these things were a good thing in terms of what the Hale family received, but what they received per what was in the per what was in Nathan's trunk was the closest that the family ever got to hearing from Nathan directly in the days leading up to his death. So the letters that he wrote should help them, um, should serve as a reminder of the sacrifices he was making, not only for um, for the cause itself, but for those um, whom um, were depending upon um, those above them to lay everything on the line so that not only the present generation could live in uh, freedom from uh, tyranny, but the same for future generations. What did uh, Richard Hale open up about come March of 1777? Now, we, we go um, three months before uh, Nathan's, um, before uh, the Hale family got uh, Nathan's trunk with all the personal items. But what did Richard Hale open about uh, come March of 1777? He spoke out about his nephew's suspected involvement behind his son's capture. Now, his nephew, remember folks, is Samuel Hale, and there, were, there was some speculation going around that maybe someone from within the greater Hale family may have ratted out Nathan. And we have to be reminded, folks, that there were uh, families who did rat out each other, not only as a means of survival, but just as a means of um, of uh, getting a better motive or a means of, um, hate to say it, but uh, gratification. And yes, there were people who um, were selfish behind the reasons for ratting out family members, but they did it. February 1777 saw a Massachusetts newspaper go about inaccurately reporting how Samuel Hale, Richard's nephew, was held liable for his cousin's death. The story was noted in the Essex Journal, which claimed that Samuel had ties to people in Long Island whom were loyalists and perhaps were well acquainted or knew of Robert Rogers and the Queen's Rangers. Samuel, on the other hand, a new cousin according to Samuel and those whom did not want to uh, believe the accusation, Samuel himself, on the other hand, knew cousin Nathan well enough to perhaps have known what could have happened if the opposite took place. Okay, that's just a 101 um, measure of defense. April of 1777 saw Richard write a letter to his brother, Samuel's father, 
about the skepticism behind what the Essex Journal published, having accused Samuel of committing a heinous act. Perhaps it's fair to say that Richard is coming to the realization that, um, that the Essex Journal has rushed to judgment, that perhaps the Essex Journal did not get their facts straight. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's fair to say that even in colonial times, newspapers, depending on where you were living or, and depending upon the circumstances, maybe it's fair to say that sometimes the, the newspapers and uh, leading up to and around the time of the Revolutionary War may not have always gotten their facts straight. Richard's letter included how his family was impacted by Nathan's death as well as the presence of Christ and God overlooking the Hale family's greater well-being during their current time of distress. So Richard's not interested in in pointing the fingers, although it, he does have concerns, but at the same time he probably knows that if he goes too far off the deep end that if he uh, accused um, his own brother of promoting uh, Toryism and knowing that he didn't have his own facts straight about that, that there could be a greater fallout from within. Some historians and researchers believe, and this is possible, but there's no 100% proof to it. But some historians and researchers believe it's possible that a Tory, a.k.a. loyalist, became upset with Samuel Hale. And maybe it's fair to say that Samuel Hale did not um, provide this um, Tory individual with the information he was wanting with regards to uh, Cousin Nathan. But anyways, uh, it could very well be that this um, that a Tory became upset with Samuel Hale only to go behind his back and provide false information. In other words, this uh, Tory individual probably could have been the one that said, oh, Samuel ratted out his cousin, Samuel did this and that to his cousin. So if anybody's going to get the blame for it, um, it's going to be Samuel. Even people from within rat each other out. It's not always the outsiders. So... Um, As for um, Richard Hale, he's still not really 100% uh, sure as to what to really even believe, including how to feel. He simply was really in no mood to judge nor disapprove his own relative, a.k.a. nephew, in Samuel. He's no longer by now really worried over speculations of someone allegedly betraying his son. The focus instead lied upon the fact that Nathan is now gone and how does the family move forward in keeping their son's legacy, or I should say spirit, alive. You know, sure, you, you, know, you can be upset all you want knowing that my son died behind enemy lines, a very tragic death. But if I were um, Elder uh, Deacon Richard Hale, I also have to, I have to keep, uh, I have to keep reminding myself that hey, look, my son was willing to die for his country, and I know that he truly does regret that he only had but one life to lose for his country. But at the same time, he would want his fellow brothers, 
not just his own brothers who could very well be fighting off fighting in the war uh, with the exception of Enoch whom um, whom had a different calling but Nathan Hale would want his fellow um, comrades to keep this fight alive even if it meant having even if it meant others going behind enemy lines and trying to get uh, vital information so that the side that they're on would in fact be able to live to fight another day and not just another day but still be able to uh, function as an entire unit given that um, all it would take is you know just one or two battles and if morale was so low to the point where soldiers didn't want to fight anymore that there just might not be a continental army so for Richard Hale you know he doesn't want to sit around and you know have a pity party yes he can certainly be sad at times knowing that Nathan's not alive anymore but he also needs to be reminded of the fact that Nathan made noble causes he was willing to risk it all and he did it's just unfortunate he was caught but that is also the price that one has to pay knowing that you go behind enemy lines there's always going to be a 50 50 chance you'll either that you will either make it back to your side safe or that you get caught and you might meet a uh, tragic um, fate and sadly, Nathan did by uh, via death by hanging. Uh, what surfaced nearly one year after Nathan Hale got executed? A letter written by none other than his cousin Samuel Hale himself, which entailed his opposition against everything the Essex Journal proclaimed he had done by allegedly turning on his own relative, cousin Nathan. However, the big kicker is this one, folks. June 9th of 1778, Samuel Hale was stationed in Philadelphia. And we do have to be reminded that even in June of 1778, Philadelphia is still in the hands of the British. But it won't be much longer until the British actually abandon Philadelphia, and then it will be um, back under control of the... Um, of continental forces, or I should say of, of uh, patriots. June 9, 1778, Samuel Hale was stationed in Philadelphia and was serving under the British Army. Okay, folks, this is where the loyalties are now, um, have now come to, um, have now come to uh, the greater um, attention. Samuel Hale is serving under the British Army. He, has, um, he wrote a letter to his wife, Lydia, expressing concerns for her along with the well-being of their son named Jack. The letter, however, never mentioned anything about cousin Nathan's death, but did include defending his own image based upon where his loyalty stood. Folks, um, Samuel Hale never returned to New Hampshire. Instead, he went to England, where he lived until 1787, the year of his passing. He never saw his family again. And, I, and, I, and we do need to be reminded of the fact that there were those um, whom were loyalists, not just so much that they were loyalists, but there were many individuals whom abandoned their families 
all in the name of loyalties, and went to England as a means of um, protection. They probably did it because they knew they were wanted men and it did not want to um, run the risk of getting caught and perhaps being hung by patriots as uh, traitors. But still, I cannot imagine, imagine abandoning my family all in the name of loyalty. But we just need to be reminded, folks, that it did happen and there were consequences. Well, thank you for your time, as always. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be uh, discussing the epilogue to M. William Phelps's Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's First Spy. Thank you for your time, as always. And uh, no matter where you live, continue to stay safe. Thank you uh, for now. And and uh, when I'm on the air again next, um, it will uh, certainly be great, as always, to um, to podcast and have you all be listening. Take care.